Welcome to the Catalyst Podcast. This episode, entitled Evangelion, was given on February 17, 2019, by Bethany Shea in the series The Gospel According to Mark. So, uh, we just finished a series on John 3:16. That is one verse. We started it in September, and we finished it two weeks ago. So. Now we're starting the book of Mark. How long do you think it'll take us to get through the whole book of Mark? <laughs> yes. Okay, so uh, we started Mark last week. The Gospel of Mark was written about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, it was during a time when Christians were experiencing major violent oppression and persecution from Rome. Uh, the, the area of Israel was occupied by Rome during that time. So Mark is writing this in a space of kind of some, some major oppression that's happening. Uh, people, scholars believe that Mark was a friend of Peter and Paul's. Um, since it doesn't say, hey, my name's Mark, and this is who I am, and welcome to the Gospel of Mark. It doesn't say that in the Bible. So there's a lot that we have to kind of infer through different resources and research. But Mark was a Jewish man who converted to Christianity He learned all he possibly could through Peter's life with Jesus, and he transcribed what Peter and other sources told him onto paper for other people to read, or scrolls. Um, And I I can imagine Mark. Mark is this guy who's, I don't know how old he is, but he's like traveling with Peter. He's he's on the road with Peter. He's he's, uh, eating meals, and they're they're getting into the Hebrew Bible, reading it together, and and they're walking alongside one another day after day, ministering to people. And I can imagine Mark never meeting Jesus in his entire life, but so interested in knowing somebody who had met Jesus. And he wanted to know everything that Peter knew because Peter knew Jesus. He wanted to know Jesus like Peter knew Jesus. And so I can imagine Mark just walking along and being like, Peter, tell me about that parable, that one that's so weird. I want to hear all about it. Will you tell me all about that parable? And Peter's like, oh, yeah, that one about the, the lost coin. Actually, I don't know. We'll read about the parables coming up. But there, you know, what, what about that girl that was raised from the dead? Was she really dead? Did you check her pulse, Peter? Are you sure she was dead before Jesus raised her? Like, I can just imagine these kind of conversations going on because Peter, because Mark was so curious about who Jesus was. Mark wanted to know Jesus like Peter knew Jesus. And then Mark knew that he had to write that down. Because not everyone would have an opportunity, like Mark did, to walk alongside a disciple who literally walked alongside Jesus while he was on this earth. And the way that Mark wrote down this gospel was for the edification of the individual person, to know and learn this life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. And more than likely, this gospel wasn't read in an early church setting. When the, when the believers gathered together, they more than likely didn't read this, these stories because they told the stories. They shared the stories in a community like Jesus was still with them, like Jesus was next to them. The things that they would read in their church gatherings in that early church were letters from Peter or letters from Paul for the edification of the church. But it was written down for individuals like Mark to experience the same encounter of Christ 
through Peter as Mark encountered. And Mark felt that burden, he felt that calling placed on him through, the God, through God's spirit to write down what other people needed to know. So turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. It goes Matthew, Mark. Mark is uh, the first gospel to be written out of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Uh, and uh, m- most scholars believe that Matthew and Luke borrowed information from Mark when they wrote their gospels and from another source called Q, which is a missing source. Um, that's probably not information that you necessarily need to know, but I think it's fascinating. Uh, so we're going to start in Mark 1.1. 1, 1. So Mark writes, The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as is written in Isaiah the prophet. Who needs a Bible, by the way? Anybody need Bibles? Okay, there's some still around here. So if you need one, just raise your hand. There's two over here. and Okay, sweet. Well, you can just listen in if you don't have one then. Um, if you don't have a Bible of your own, this is you can take the ones that are here, as long as it's not somebody else's Bible. You can't be like, oh, that was leather-bound. I'm taking that. It has somebody else's name in it. You're not, you're not allowed to take that. Uh, so the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. So Mark begins his account. Everything that we'll read, everything that we sit in for the next few months, he begins his account by anchoring a, what, everything that a person will read about Jesus through the lens of Jesus as the Messiah. The Hebrew people had been praying for and, and, and holding out for their Messiah for a long time. It, they'd been banking on the Messiah to come. The Messiah was going to look like some sort of militaristic rescue in the form of a triumphant king or a mighty warrior who would come from God. And this mighty rescuer would be their Messiah, God's chosen one, God's anointed one, who would overthrow their oppressors and redeem the land back to Israel. This is what they looked for. This is who they expected, this warrior king. But then when you look throughout these first pages, these these first verses, we see what kind of king is being prepared for with John the Baptist. In the beginning verses about John the Baptist, it doesn't showcase this messianic experience because John the Baptist didn't look like the priest in the temple like he was supposed to look like. He was eating, instead of eating choice meats and wearing ornate robes like the priests of the day would have worn, he was eating locusts in the wilderness. He was dressed in camel hair like this this picture and posture of poverty. John was in the wilderness instead of in the temple. And Jesus didn't look like the Messiah they were expecting on a war horse. Jesus looked like a servant who was willing to be baptized in a dirty river instead of inside the temple in Jerusalem. So already from a early Christian mindset, or a first century mindset, somebody reading this saying, oh, this is about the Messiah? Already, it would something would be in, going off in their brain saying, wait, 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 this doesn't look like the Messiah that we're expecting. How is this about the Messiah? It would be a story that is causing you to pay attention to something unexpected that's happening. It's a story that invites the listener to have a humble and empty heart that's willing to be 
receiving God, to be filled up by this good news that what God was doing in the world. All right. So let's uh, jump to verse 9, because last week we were really in the wilderness with John the Baptist. So verse 9, it says, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, with whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. At once the Spirit led him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. So we're going to stop there for a minute, and we'll go on in just a few. But I wanted to say, like, the cool thing about this this part of the passage is that what we see is that the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, that Mark begins his story with, where expectations are disrupted if we pay attention, it begins with this disruption. Like it, it, it the, that passage that says uh, that he saw heaven being torn open. Like that's really visceral language, right? Like it's it, heaven is being torn open and the Holy Spirit leaves heaven to dwell on earth with Jesus. And this language actually is interesting because it's the exact same language Mark uses at the very end of his gospel. There is a passage of scripture at the end of Mark that he uses the same language of heaven being torn open when he says that, um, that there's this, this part in the Bible where, where Jesus is crucified and he's murdered on the cross. And then Mark says that the, the curtain that's used in the temple to separate the heavenly from the earthly, to separate the holy of holies where only the high priest could go into one time a year, to separate the sacred space that housed God's presence on earth so God's presence wouldn't be corrupted by sinful humanity, this inch-thick curtain was torn open and God's presence was unleashed into the world where, where God's presence was available to all people through this experience. Because of Christ's death on the cross, Jesus did away with sin and death in that moment, and then God's love is now available to all who put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And so in this beginning passage of Mark, we see that Mark is saying, this is happening through Jesus Christ now. Like the love that God is pushing out into the world that we see after Christ's death and resurrection is embedded and embodied in Christ already through heaven coming down in that moment, through heaven being torn open. So Mark wants the reader to recognize that the presence of God's love throughout all is throughout all of Jesus' life and ministry. That when we read every miracle, when we read every encounter, when we read anything that Jesus said or did, it is through the embodiment of God's love incarnate right then and there. And so Mark writes about Jesus being baptized and a voice from heaven saying, this is my son and I am so pleased in him. Like Jesus, God is saying, I am so pleased with Jesus. You guys, Jesus hasn't done anything yet. 
Like, he has not even preached his first sermon. He could totally be a horrible preacher. He could do the worst job in the world. Like, he has not healed anyone. He has not made it through any difficult trials or temptations yet. He's never even called his first disciples. Jesus hasn't done anything to deserve God's affirmation of him, yet God is pleased with Jesus simply because God loves Jesus. And God is pleased with you simply because God loves you. God thinks you are incredible and valuable and worthy because God made you incredible, valuable, and worthy. The Bible says that God delights in you, that you're fearfully and wonderfully made, that every time you doubt your belovedness, or you believe that you're not smart enough or not thin enough or not worthy enough of of, of having friends or being loved, God gently wants to turn your attention to the grounding truth that you are God's child and in, in you, God is very pleased. God is very pleased. And from that grounding identity making as one that God is already pleased with, Jesus is sent into this wilderness of hunger, of need, a wilderness of doubt and uncertainty, a wilderness of grief and suffering and loneliness and exposure, a wilderness that most of us in this room have experienced one time or another, where we're in that place of utter loneliness or when we lost our best friend to cancer and we cannot even begin to understand how to grieve properly, much less eat. Jesus is sent into that wilderness because in order to survive in the wilderness, one needs to be grounded in their belovedness. Jesus was told he was loved before he experienced that wilderness. Because if we're ever going to survive the wilderness that comes our way, we need to be grounded in our belovedness first and foremost. And the good news, that gospel is shown by Jesus being loved before he even entered the wilderness. Let's keep reading. Mark 1.14. It says, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Okay, we'll stop there again. I want to sit in that that word for time. The time has come. I think sometimes we th- when we think of time, we're like, well, it's on our schedule. I put it in my calendar. The time has come. It's there on my calendar. I'm seeing it. It's coming up really soon, and it's going to be that day real quick. The the word for time here is kairos instead of chronos. That that word kairos means a sacred pause. It means a holy disruption of the expected. It means a, a divine appointment or a holy invitation to pay attention to the unexpected. What Mark is doing here is he's trying to show that this is that our ideas of who the Messiah is is not who the Messiah is. He is not some sort of militaristic warhorse coming through. He is a gentle and, and suffering servant that we need to pay attention to. And that Kairos moment of time 
is when that disruption is happening all around us where heaven and earth are being blurred together in those moments. The kairos has come, Jesus said. That holy disruption is revealing that God was up to something within God's kingdom. Jesus is saying, pay attention to this kairos moment. And I think that that life with Jesus is kind of this continual kairos moment. Like, I think that Jesus is always up to something and is always inviting us to pay attention with what God is wanting to do through us to help heal and care care for this world. And I think that every day is peppered with these holy invitations, with these sacred disruptions that God is inviting us to pay attention to. And I think Kairos is being rooted in our belovedness so even the wilderness becomes something sacred. Even in the moments where we're like, God, I don't know what you're doing in this place. I don't even think I belong here. There is a sacredness that happens knowing that God is with us even in the wilderness. There are Kairos moments happening even there. And it's from this place of God's time that we are invited into a posture of repentance and discipleship. Repentance is like a really big churchy word. I don't know about for you, but like I've got about 800 pounds of emotional baggage on the word repentance whenever I talk about it. But repentance means to change your mind. It comes from the Greek word metanoia, which is the same as we were, where we get the word metamorphosis. I was actually asking my kids this morning, I'm like, what is the word that happens when the butterfly goes into the, or the caterpillar goes into the cocoon and it's changed into a new thing? And they're like, metamorphosis? I was like, yeah, that's the one. (laughs) I'm glad that they know. Uh, But it's that same word that we get that. The essence of the caterpillar, who God created the caterpillar as, is still with that caterpillar when they become a butterfly. It's not like the caterpillar no longer exists. It's just transformed into something new. And repentance means a willingness to change your mind. Repentance means a humble and soft heart that is willing to learn. Disciples are people who learn under a teacher. They are students who have to posture themselves to learn from someone with greater authority and greater wisdom. There's a few teachers in this room, or at least previous teachers or professors now. That we, I know there's a few of you in this room, and, and if you are in a class and there is a student in your class who believes that they have nothing more to learn from you, like that, that you don't know as much as they know, then there's nothing you can do to get them to learn from you. You can't change their mind. That has to come from within them to take a posture of learning, to have a posture of a changing of mind, that repentant sort of a posture. To believe the good news that God was up to something new in the world means that we have to change our minds on what we think we know because we are designed by God to be lifelong learners of God's love. Like the day, like today you're like, oh, I understand God's love. I, I totally have received God's love. I don't have anything else to learn about God's love. Is the minute that like pride comes in and God can no longer move within you. It's like it's like we're we're called to be conduits of God's love, but it's like something is blocking that. 
the minute that we believe that there's nothing else to learn. Disciples are meant to be in a continual process of lifelong learning of what it means to be the beloved child of God. Any thoughts before we go to the next passage? Anything that's coming up from kairos or belovedness or um, discipleship or anything yet? Yeah, Julia. Like trying to live a life of constant repentance too. Yeah, yeah, that 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 posture of your heart. It's yeah, definitely. Anything else coming up? Oh, no worries. I'm like, that must be my phone. <laughs> I like how you put those two things together for repentance and uh, the discipleship. Yeah. That changing of the mind is. Uh, I'm just, yeah, I'm just so excited about what you said. Changing the mind leads to that openness of the mind. Yeah. So that you can continually be learning what you need to be learning, not just directly from God but from sources that you think that you would never teach you anything. Right, yeah. right. Totally. Yeah, that constant lifelong learner. Cool. All right. Oh, yeah. And also knowing to, send, to say no, have self-discipline. Self-discipline, when to say no. Change your mind. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Louis. All right, let's uh, go to verse 16. So it says, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. All right, I want to just take a minute here and you guys can keep reading through it if you want. And I wanted to see if anything is coming up from that. Anything that um, that's interesting or questions or uh, thoughts and then we'll keep going. All right, anything coming up? Anything interesting or questions or weird things? So much weird stuff in the Bible. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, to drop everything. At Bible study on Thursday, Brahms was, uh, he was like, you know, I've worked in, I've been doing some fishing for a long time. He's been working in the, the oyster farm for a long time. And he's like, I don't know anybody who would just leave their nets. Like that's, that's a big deal. Nets are, are not, they're not cheap. They're not easy to come by. You got to clean them. You got to be responsible with them. What does it mean to drop all of your responsibilities? What does that mean for everybody else that you leave behind who has to clean up your mess? Like, it's a big deal. That's what struck me. Yeah. Uh, with the first two, it doesn't say anything 
It just says Simon and his brother Andrew, and they left. Yeah. But then it was, it's interesting because with James and John, it mentions that they left and their father was there and they had helpers. And so it was, it's like suggesting that yeah. they literally just left their nets to whoever wants to take them. When they yeah. Leave. Yeah. Um, it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Anything else? It seems kind of selfish. Like, they you're are. leaving things behind for someone else to deal with, to go follow someone else. Yeah. Right? Totally. I know. It's like, what, what is God up to here? Because there must be something more that we don't understand. <laughs> Ian? Well, one of the things that stands out to me slightly in the cultural context is that um, all their friends from Torah class who were Torah class, does everybody know what that means? So, from, from studying the, you know, when they're little boys they'd be studying the Torah, that's mm-hmm. what their school was. So the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. And, uh, and then after that you're apprentice. Mm-hmm. And all the best and the brightest of their friends would have already been chosen by different rabbis in the area to go, that's a job, that's what your mom wanted to be. Yeah. Go study with a rabbi. And uh, that's that's long past every single one of these guys. They're out being apprenticed by their by their dads, by their uncles, by whomever, to be fishermen. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of a sudden here's a rabbi calling them right. to come and Yeah, it's an incredible honor that they were invited to to follow. It's what they had dreamed of their whole life, to be a disciple of a rabbi. Turn with me to uh, John 1. You can keep your finger in Mark 1 because we'll go back there, but John is right after Luke, so Mark, Luke, John. Because somehow this Jesus fellow was compelling enough for them to leave everything behind. Uh, We'll read verses 35 to 42. Does somebody want to read that for us? Thanks, Haley. exactly like the timeline or anything. This is John the Baptist's disciples who was Andrew. And Andrew said, hey, Peter, my, my brother Peter, you got to meet this guy, Jesus. We're pretty sure this is the Messiah because that's who John's saying he is. And so maybe there was some sort of a relational equity happening beforehand, before Jesus met him on the, met the, those guys on the, the lake. Also, uh, they lived in an area called Capernaum, which was uh, an area where everybody knew everybody. It was like way smaller than Arcata. 
And so, like, you know when you go to Costco and you see, like, 15 people you know, like, oh, we all live at Costco, I guess. It was like that, but you all actually did live together. And, uh, and so Peter and Andrew, who may have known Jesus before, or at least met him, or were so drawn by him, hoping that this Jesus would call them, probably knew James and John. And for Andrew and Peter to follow Jesus when Jesus came upon James and John was just such testimony and witness to James and John being like, oh yeah, I'm going to follow this guy too. I don't know. That's just, that's just an, an idea. It's nothing, nothing you guys need to like bank on or anything. Just my thoughts. I think the important thing that comes from this passage that we read today, verses 9 to 20, is that the first thing that's absolutely important about this passage is that Jesus first accepts his identity as beloved. That is where he grounded himself in for everything he did from that moment on. And then secondly, Jesus endures this 40 days of wilderness, probably seeped in prayer, probably communing with God as much as he can. How many times have you been in a wilderness and like that whole idea of praying without ceasing is absolutely real because all you can do to survive is pray. I've been there before. It is amazing to see like how close I am to God when I feel like God's so far away because all I can do to breathe is pray. And then third, what Jesus does immediately after this wilderness and after he knows his identity is that he proclaims the good news of of God's kingdom that is open for anyone who desires it. And then fourth, Jesus intentionally invites specific people to learn from him and to do life together. I mean, Jesus looks at these young men and believes they can be like him. A disciple's role was to follow so closely behind their rabbi or teacher that they become like their rabbi. And the disciple still retains their own personality. They still would see the world unique to their own lens and their own experiences, absolutely. But their goal is to become so much like their rabbi that they eventually graduate and then they become a rabbi who then makes disciples who follow them and the cycle continues on. The rabbi intentionally invites in specific people into discipleship. And I think Jesus prayed about and was intentional about who he was calling because he didn't call Zebedee. He left the hired men behind. They're right there with them. Maybe they're even like cousins. They could be family members. Jesus was so Intentional, And we might look at this and be a little bit curious about who Jesus invited and why he was so selective. Why do you think he was so selective? Why do you think Jesus was like, you, you, not it, not it, you. Like, why do you think he was selective? Their willingness of heart. Their willingness of heart? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe they didn't accept, maybe the other ones just didn't accept him as the truth, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Like that that heart gut connection yeah, for like sure. Yeah. 
Totally. Totally. Yeah. I, I think that there are people that God's wired you, each of you. God has like wired each of you to connect deeply with specific people and other people that God's not calling you to connect deeply with. We are all designed by God for life together, for intentional community as disciples. But that doesn't mean your inner circle must include everyone. Through prayer, we discover who we are called to connect deeply with. And for Jesus, what we read in the Bible is that Jesus had 70 or 72 disciples around him almost all of the time, men and women disciples who were following him, who were uh, so connected with Jesus in many ways. They spent their time and their energy and their resources following Jesus and learning from Jesus and taking what they learned and then applying it to their day jobs and to their family lives and to their communities to share the good news of God's kingdom wherever they went. But beyond those 70 men and women disciples, Jesus chose 12 men to leave everything else behind and to commit on a different level of life together. And out of those 12, Jesus spent most of his time with Peter, James, and John. Peter's brother was Andrew. He didn't make it into that that intentional, intentional, intentional group. I don't think he felt left out. I think he knew Jesus was just up to something. And to look at that model that Jesus left for us, I believe is a model of hospitality. And I don't mean that you're always baking pies for people. If you want to bake pies for me, that's fine. I will gladly accept them. I don't think it always means hospitality with like inviting people into your home all the time. I I, I do believe that we are called to that, absolutely. But there's this hospitality of self that Jesus offers and then invites us to do the same. Jesus later says that everything he has been given from the Father, he has given to his followers. He holds nothing back. So imagine, okay, I know there's that verse like Jesus, like I stand on the door and knock and you've seen the little pictures of Jesus like at your, the door of your heart knocking to get in. Imagine it's reversed. I know that's not like biblical or anything, but imagine it's reversed and you're standing outside of Jesus' home and you knock on the door and he opens the door and he's just like, oh, you're here. I'm so glad you're here. I've been wanting you to be here this whole time. Come in, come in, come in. And you step inside of Jesus' home with all your baggage with all your mental health issues, with all your painful pasts and and raw open wounds that you're dealing with still, with all of your uh, put way togetherness, like, oh, well, I've got it all figured out. I am great, Jesus, thank you. Like all of that, you're walking into Jesus' home. And Jesus invites you to sit down and to rest because his couch is your couch. And he says, you guys, the the fridge is over here in the kitchen. All of the food in there is yours. It's all yours. Just go and make yourself at home. Eat whatever you want. And the sunroom over here, the sunroom is a great place to take a nap. Just lay down as long as you need. If you need to sleep the next three months, take it. This This is your space to rest and be filled and be cared for. Everything I have is yours, Jesus says. 
All the love I have from the Father is yours. All the approval that I have from the Father saying, well done, or saying, this is my son who I am pleased, or saying, I love this son so much. All that love that I have gotten from the Father is yours. All the ability to love your neighbor as yourself, man, I'm going to give you that ability, comes from the Father through me to you. I believe that this is how Jesus wants us to live. Like where there's no fear and rejection from other people because God's already called you beloved, even though you never earned that title. This space flowing from the Father through the Son into you is where we get to flow that love through us into other people. That, that, That idea of being a conduit of God's love is just this constant flow that goes from us from, from the Father through Jesus through us and to others. There's that passage of scripture that, that I think it's Paul says that you will know that we are Christians by our love for each other. Man, who has God placed on your heart to invite in, to be hospitable for? I think God wants us to live intentionally and vulnerably and closely with other people. You have so much to give and to learn and to teach to this community here. But that does not mean that you have to spread yourself thin. God's put specific people on your heart to disciple, to disciple them in the ways of Jesus, to be discipled by them. Because Jesus was making disciples who would make disciples, but the disciples never became the rabbi. The disciples just made more disciples of Jesus. Jesus was always and has always been our great rabbi, our great teacher, the savior of the world, the Messiah. It is Jesus who we look to. And the rest of us just keep pointing to Jesus again and again. So when I point to Jesus and you point to Jesus, we're all recognizing what God is doing. We are all discipling each other in those moments. But God's put specific people on your heart to disciple. And I believe that God has released you to let go of those who might zap your energy, people who might be a burden to you. And this doesn't mean that you don't connect with people. It doesn't mean that you don't love them. It might even mean that God has placed a person who might feel a little burdensome on your heart for a reason because God is inviting you to do something with that person. But it might be this place where God is saying, you know what? I've got a different inner circle for these people, and you need to trust that I have that. You are not meant to fill every single void in that person's life. I am, not me, Jesus. (laughs) Our church is small. I mean, look around this room, there's probably what, like 45 people, 50? It's a small church. It might feel like its own inner circle, but it's not. God has placed specific people on your heart here at Catalyst and and outside of this church. And God is inviting you to invest deeply in them, to pray about how you're discipling them in the ways of Jesus, to take a posture of being discipled by them in the ways of Jesus. We all learn from someone. I want to learn from the Father, Son, and Spirit. I want my primary identity and my foundation to be where the Father says to me, this is my daughter Bethany. In her, I am well pleased that this 
became my nature. This became my identity when I gave my life to Jesus. I was born again, so this is who I am. But oftentimes, most times, I need other people around me to remind me of this truth. And I want to help you and those in my inner circle to be reminded of this truth as well. Because when this becomes our foundation, God's love actually can radically flow through us. God gave us each other and brought us together to be reminded of the truth that our nature is in Christ as his disciples. So let me pray, and then we'll go into our time of response. Uh, Jesus, um, I know there's more to this, this teaching than we could ever get to, this, this reading of your word. So Lord, if there's something that I've said here that is meant for somebody in this room, I pray that you will just embed it deep in their hearts. If there's something that I've said that is taken away from your word, I pray that you will just erase that from their minds. <laughs> Lord, help this to be true in our lives. Help us to know who you are calling us to seek out as disciples, who it is that you are calling us to reach into and to care for and pull in. Lord, we thank you for intentional community. We thank you for vulnerability. We thank you for your word. And Jesus, we thank you for your life and your death and your resurrection. That new life is always abundant. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about ways that you can be involved with Catalyst, please visit our website at provokechange.org. Until next time, continue loving God, loving our neighbors, and loving each other.